Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Mitch Brown. He's an instructor and researcher in psychology at the University of Arkansas. His research uses complementary social and evolutionary perspectives in understanding how fundamental social motives shape social perceptions and interpersonal preferences. His work primarily considers, first, the trade-offs people invoke to avoid disease and belong to groups, second, the prioritization of physical features and behaviors in shaping preferences for short-term and long-term mates, and third, how inferences of men's formidability inform stereotypes of personality and social functions. And today we're going to talk a little bit about all of that. So, Dr. Brown, welcome to the show. It's a huge pleasure to everyone. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Ricardo. So let's start with pathogen avoidance then, if that's sure. okay with you. So Absolutely. why have people evolved behaviors to avoid pathogens? I mean, it seems more or less obvious, but still. So no, no, no. You, you, you have to spell it out sometimes. Uh, so really, for the most part, the, uh, the human immune system, it's, it's really it's really nice. It's, it's sophisticated. Uh, I mean, uh, white blood cells are pretty awesome, multicellular defenses, amazing. But the problem with that is to be able to uh, you know, use our biological components of the immune system, uh, well, it's metabolically costly. Uh, it takes uh, quite a few calories to raise our temperature, even just one degree Celsius. Uh, we, we have to produce white blood cells. Uh, it, 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 there's just, there are just a lot of metabolic resources that go into a strong immunological response. At that time then, it, you know, uh, we may be losing out on the possibility of satisfying other uh, fitness-enhancing behaviors that are that are possibly a bit more salient, uh, or not more salient at the moment, but the ones that can be, you know, similarly advantageous. So if, if we're if we're sick, I mean, that may make us you know, less hungry. We may be less interested in mating. So uh, so we just we're less likely to engage in other kinds of fitness-enhancing behaviors because we're sick all the time. So in that case, then. Uh, selection likely should have favored those who are able to identify uh, possible cues of pathogens uh, preemptively, so that way they, so not only do they detect it, uh, they can ultimately avoid it, so that way they don't need to do these strong metabolically costly uh, responses to uh, these prospective disease factors. I mean, I would would hate to say that the the behavioral immune system itself is, uh, which is typically what, what we refer to this as, I don't necessarily want to say that this is entirely separate from the biological immune system. I personally, I, I have been you know, coming to think of it as uh, as just one component of a larger system. But this one, just insofar as this is us being able to identify something ahead of time, so that way we don't need to incur the large uh, the metabolic costs. So that way we can still maintain our fitness enhancement. Right. And what cues do people usually pay attention to when they want to avoid infection sure uh so a variety of cues uh, uh, pretty readily uh, uh the, the most obvious ones are you know like uh, like actual vertical cues of of actual physical illness so uh, maybe mold you know, something that's rotting so the uh, food is a classic example so i mean unless you're really really hungry i don't think you want to eat something with with green fuzz on it so but you know, the, the, so you know, those kinds of things but we can also move it a, a bit more removed. Uh, so even in, in the absence of these very obvious, you know, putative cues, uh, there's there, people are still fairly accurate at, at identifying somebody's health status through static facial features. Uh, just as an example, uh, the, uh, people use facial asymmetry as, as means to identify someone who is 
you know, potentially, you know, uh, pathogenically you know, threatening. So even if someone who, uh, who is, you know, facially asymmetric isn't necessarily you know, going, going to be sick themselves, the, the fact that there's this deviation from what, you know, what is considered, you know, typical, which is, you know, a higher degree of symmetry, that is heuristically associated with uh, with disease cues. So uh, facial asymmetry is oftentimes uh, derogated because of this fact. We also can extend this into things that uh, are even less uh, putative of, of infectious disease. So just uh, so with uh, with facial asymmetry, typically speaking, people with asymmetric faces, they typically uh, are more they're they're more prone to uh, to upper respiratory infections. They they tend uh, uh, you know, not to, not to be as healthy you know, overall, uh, but even then too, just as another example, obesity. So individuals uh, you know with obesity, they they tend to I mean, obviously you can't catch obesity, but at the same time though, we, we use those physical cues to, uh, to infer someone heuristically as as a possible pathogen threat, even though they really aren't. So yeah uh, yeah, facial asymmetry is you know a, a fairly big one. Obesity and where some of my work comes in. Uh, uh, cues to uh, gregariousness. So even though uh, you're ostensibly not, it's not necessarily a cue of you know somebody's overall health. Uh, individuals who are particularly gregarious or though or the act of engaging in people interpersonally that presents a, a disease threat unto itself. I mean, for the past two and a half years, almost three years now, you know we've been living in this bubble of of, of you know just don't touch me so, social distancing. Uh, so it's it's what it's, uh, and and really uh, physical contact is 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 probably one of the best ways to, uh, that disease can be transmitted. So it's uh, it, it it would be you know it's sensible to understand that uh, as someone who's highly sociable, that they're you know having more interpersonal contact that may implicate them as potentially a, a disease a disease factor themselves. So uh, and what kinds of trade-offs are then between are there between avoiding disease and social interaction? Because I mean, as humans, I would imagine that even though you might gain something temporarily by by avoiding disease, it, you still incur a cost by avoiding social interaction, right? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So uh, with, with that in mind, here's uh, so. Like, like with most uh, of all motivations, uh, people, t uh, you know, there's they're always competing with each other. So oftentimes, satisfaction of one motive is at the expense of satisfaction of another. And the, the one that that my work primarily focuses on, as, as you as you pointed out, is the the uh, the tension between uh, disease avoidance and affiliation. So just just as an example of this, so yeah, even though you're you're certainly not going to be, or your chances of, of incurring an infection are going to be quite reduced when you're uh, avoiding people, when disease is especially salient. At the same time, though, you're missing out on a lot of crucial social connections. Humans are social animals. We want to make sure that we have uh, have uh, connections with people. We we want to we we want to affiliate. And you know, typically speaking, what, what we may see it so. Uh, previous research shows that uh, well, some, some of mine too that when you make people think about disease, uh, they actually become less motivated to be parts of groups. They tend to uh, want the uh, less interpersonal contact. They want they want to avoid someone who could be potentially friendly. But again, the you know, the cost of that is a, a viable social opportunity. So so just as an example, even though someone who let's just say they're extroverted, this person may you know uh, you know. Uh, you know, be a higher risk of infection because of the fact they're touching everyone. Uh, they're also still an optimal social opportunity because they have a larger social network. They're they're especially friendly. 
Uh, so, so at the same time, though, you may be missing out on valuable social opportunities that could have historically, you know, benefited you in, in terms of uh, just meeting other kinds of fitness goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I mean, are personality traits responsive to pathogen concern? For example, that theory that people like Randy Thornhill and others developed the pathogen stress theory of values and other stuff. Uh, I mean, is it still supported by the evidence? I think that if it is, then uh, in cases where people are exposed to more pathogen stress, uh, they are less, for example, less open to experience, less, less extroverted and stuff like that. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing is that, uh, I mean, there's obviously going to be some heterogeneity in the literature. There always is. But at, at the same time, though, I mean, just that we, we typically do see this uh, uh, general uh, uh, down. So the term I, I would use is down regulation. So individuals who are in chronically pathogenic areas, so maybe countries with higher pathogen loads, we typically see people like, like you said, who are less open to trying new things, people who are less extroverted. But at the same time, though, there are still these personality differences insofar as you know, people who, uh, so, so the overall construct is called uh, perceived vulnerability to disease. Uh, and, and individuals who, are, uh, who have these heightened pathogen concerns, whether it be perceptions of themselves as, as more likely to be infected or just a, a chronic aversion to uh, possible germs, well, what we actually see is that on this chronic level, they, they tend to you know, avoid not only disease cues, but other people in general. So the kind of interesting thing that, that I'm seeing with, with my work pretty heavily, uh, among other people actually, is that uh, so just overall, uh, the, this chronic activation of this uh, pathogen avoidance, these individuals typically, they, 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 you know, the, they're vigilant toward everyone. It's really only when you see low levels of disease, of disease avoidance uh, dispositionally where you see the effects of aversion to disease cues. But again, overall, just people who are avoiding of, of pathogens chronically, they simply just don't, they, they, they're wary of everyone. In, in a sense here, they're erring so much on the side of caution that everyone is implicated as, as a potential disease vector. Mm-hmm. So uh, let me ask you about this one because I read about this in your work and I found it a bit funny. So uh, what's the relationship between pathogen avoidance and the stigmatization of yawning? Stigmatization, what? I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, yawning. Yo- oh, yawning? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So, th- that, that's an interesting one. Uh, so, uh, if, uh, if, you, if you ever get a chance to talk to Andrew Gallup about a lot of this stuff, uh, I, I would recommend it. Uh, he's been working on, on yawning for years. Uh, but, yeah, so, uh, yeah, so just in terms of yawning, uh, typically speaking, uh, well, there's, uh, as, um, uh, Individuals who uh, who yawn typically, you know, it's it's a non-normative behavior. It's uh, in many ways, it's there's some research to suggest that uh, that we use yawning as a cue to, to identify some potential like uh, 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 illness. Actually, so uh, if you remember in the paper, we we mentioned something to the effect of uh, plague doctors used to uh, identify possible you know uh, sickness through someone potentially uh, yawning, and there's ostensibly this uh, kernel of truth to this actually. Uh, so in this research that we did similarly, uh, you know, we you know we actually uh, uh, were able to demonstrate that chronic levels of disease avoidance, both you know in terms of perceived infectability, germ aversion, and 
and uh, and what we call pathogen disgust. There tends to be the you know this diagnosticity of uh, of yawning as, as a possible disease cue, even if this person isn't necessarily sick itself, just because it's 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 heuristically associated with something non-normative, something considered you know uh, unhealthy. Uh, we tend to have a higher level of stigmatization toward that behavior. Now, unfortunately, though, I don't know how to say it. Unfortunately, at the same time, though, uh, in, in this paper, because yawning is still such a social thing that we have that, that whole contagious aspect of it, uh, which could potentially indicate why it's so aversive to, to people who are concerned about disease, just the fact that it's, it's considered contagious. But at the same time, though, if, if somebody's yawning and we recognize it uh, and, and we yawn ourselves, maybe that's a way we could possibly uh, connect with another person socially. Uh, the data didn't pan out that way, typically speaking. Individuals who were motivated to belong, they did not actually have a heightened interest in yawning. Not, not interest in yawning. Uh, basically, yawning was stigmatized, not nearly as much as coughing, sneezing, and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, though, uh, even though you can't necessarily you know, catch cooties from yawning, uh, uh, pe uh, people who are dispositionally avoidant of germs, they typically... Uh, uh, viewed yawning as similarly, you know, aversive, uh, potentially in the service of mitigating their contact with possible uh, heuristic use of disease. Mm -hmm. So changing topics now, I'd like to ask you about uh, mate preferences when it comes to physical features and talk a little bit about some of your work on facial features specifically. Sure. So what are the most well-established physical features that men and women prefer in a potential partner? Sure, yeah. So this one's a bit of a mixed bag. There's a lot of environmental effects on this one. Uh, so the most classic example of, of attractive faces uh, or in terms of features that are, are considered attractive, uh, well, the big one is facial symmetry. So mm -hmm. like I said previously, individuals with more symmetrical faces they, you know, they typically, you know, report greater levels of chronic health. These people tend to, you know, not to incur, you know, uh, infections as, as readily. Uh, but at the same time, though, individuals uh, who, you know, who, who are symmetrical, uh, facially, these individuals, you know, they, they typically uh, are, you know, you know, just, you know, there, there's an absence of disease cues. And what we see actually is that individuals who are motivated to find cues to heritable fitness, uh, so good genes, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, typically, people who are looking for short-term mating partners where, you know, where, you know your heritable fitness is quite prioritized, what we see is a, a giant increase in, in, in preferences for, you know, for facial symmetry or, uh, or uh, in kind of that same vein of thinking, actually, uh, what we would call a sexually dimorphic feature. So masculinized male faces, feminized female faces. Now, again, there there is quite a bit of heterogeneity for... Uh, the masculinized male faces. Uh, some of these effects tend to be very bounded by context, sometimes by culture. Uh, so with, with with feminized facial features, as an example, uh, typically speaking, fem facial femininity tends to be a fairly robust uh, cue to developmentally appropriate levels of estrogen. So basically, uh, we have women's overall fertility. At the same time, actually, what we see is that women with very feminized facial features, they tend to... Uh, you know, be warmer. They tend to uh, you know, be. Uh, uh, I guess the term you could use is maternal. So th th there's a warmth about it, and just what we see overall is uh, you know, just men have a strong preference, and uh, ultimately irrespective of, of context. But then with masculinized fa uh, facial features, what we actually see is kind of an interesting. Uh, well, at least based off of my interpretation, in addition to some of my own data, uh, so it could be masculinized facial features. So uh, kind of a square jawline, uh, wider forehead. Uh, 
So what recent studies have actually shown that what, uh, facial width is itself sexually dimorphic. So mm -hmm. men tend to have wider faces and typically speaking, that, that appears to be associated with some level of prenatal testosterone. Uh, and just in general overall, people with these wider faces, they tend to you know, be physically stronger. They tend to uh, you know, uh, have, have more upper body strength, more musculature. Uh, they, they tend to survive violent conflicts more historically. Uh, so the thing is, there's a high degree of heritable fitness with these individuals. And typically in a short-term context, these very masculinized features, women find them you know, especially desirable, uh, they're interested in, in, in those displays. But at the same time though, women are recognizing a cost with it. Uh, and what we see, what I see as a lot of heterogeneity in the literature is masculinized features, they, they have competing signal values. So uh, sure, this person's attractive, but masculinized features, just because you know you get that, that manly uh, yeah, face going on, uh, sometimes a furrow brow. And in that case, these individuals tend to look angry, they look aggressive, uh, they possibly could look more, more exploitative. Now, in some instances, highly masculinized men, men who have high levels of testosterone uh, in, in, in certain contexts, uh, you know, or, or, or I, I should say, you know, just uh, pre, uh, more, more of a prenatal testosterone. Uh, the, the, these individuals, you know, they, they tend to you know, have a more aggressive interpersonal style because physically they, they can do things more aggressively because they have physical advantages in fights. And what we see is, you know, just a, a more chronic, you know, behavioral repertoire indicating how uh, uh, that they're that they're that they're aggressive. So at the same, so even though these guys are sexy, uh, women are still recognizing them as potentially costly. So what we see is uh, basically women uh, oftentimes will downregulate their interest in in masculinized uh, faces or masculinized features when they're looking for well, as a, in a long term context. So. Uh, physically strong men, typically they have they have more uh, lifetime sexual partners, so maybe the the inferred promiscuity of these faces can undermine their attractiveness long term. Or possibly if they're physically aggressive, maybe this person could be uh, maybe they're heuristically saying this person is physically exploitative. Uh, not to say that that some of the masculine faces are always going to be exploitative, of course, but there seems to be some kind of heuristic association where women are making these choices based around these costs and benefits. And what we actually see is in cultures or societies where uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, you know hot hostility toward women, a lot of intimate partner violence. Women tend to have a much stronger version to uh, facial masculinity overall. So even though uh, some people like to argue that this is a very Western thing to prefer masculinized male faces, uh, uh, it could also you know be a fact of the, uh, uh, certain kinds of e uh, ecological stressors could be you know the basis of this heterogeneity. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if women are exposed a lot to uh, threats or contextually are exposed to threats, do they tend to prefer to partner with more with men that show more of these masculinized faces just for protection, for example? Yep. So that's another trade-off, actually. So, so yeah. So even though there, there's a possibility of this person being, you know, interpersonal, uh, intergroup What's, what's even the best term for that? So exploitative on the intergroup level, uh, there's still the fact that they can provide some kind of intergroup protection. Uh, so, 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 uh, uh, so that that's kind of an interesting th you know, thing too, actually. So, so, you know, the, some research you know, do, does show that I don't know there is there is that aversion in in, in some ecologies toward the men who appear physically threatening. But but at the same time though, if your goal is protection, the idea of someone who's warm and nurturing isn't it, isn't going to be as important to you. Uh, so some some work that I did in my graduate training, some uh, papers that inspired us. If you know if you have a heightened fear of crime, you have a heightened fear uh, you know that the world is dangerous. 
uh, you tend to uh, what we what we typically see uh, with women is they tend to gravitate toward facial structures that could connote some kind of formidability, whatever that may be, whatever whatever the actual signal value is. If so, if so, someone looks impossibly dominant or threatening, uh, even, they may be more willing to incur the cost of possible intergroup exploitation if the, if this person could actually be be protective. Uh, we also see this too in parenting domains, which is something that I've I've been uh, getting into myself recently. So men with uh, physically you know stronger bodies, men with wider faces overall, uh, uh, even though they're not necessarily seen as particularly nurturing and caring, the the big benefit of having these physically strong men this is something that women prioritize when looking for a mate, someone who can protect them. So even though there's that possible you know cost of a of a strong man uh, in terms of promiscuity or exploitation, mm-hmm. uh, the, the the big benefit is he's advantage in combat and could thus uh, keep that uh, that child safe mm-hmm. but i mean i would imagine that this also this works the same for other men i mean when they seek coalitions or potential coalitions with formidable men in contexts where there's a threat or instability and stuff like that right Oh, you, you you are so good with that foresight. Yes, exactly what it is. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so in that case, then yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, so my work does show that in parenting domains, this is certainly a thing. But yes, on a coalitional level, especially among men. So, but here's also the interesting part too. Uh, both men and women are, are choosing strong men for coalitions of protection. Uh, so, so for men, it could likely be based in the service of having strong coalitional allies. But for women, it could just it, it, now, I've not tested this yet empirically, but there are other people who have done tangential things. Are women perceiving these men as potential bodyguards? But yes, absolutely. Men are viewing the, you know, these physically strong men as coalitional allies. They're viewing these men as able to protect, help them protect resources. Uh, other work I've, I've done shows actually that in very harsh ecologies, uh, we actually uh, uh, like to build coalitions of physically strong men to help protect our resources. Or if we're going into some kind of a hostile environment, that these strong men, you know, they they're seen as you know representative of someone who can, you know, get the get the job done if there's some kind of outgroup threat. Mm-hmm. So, uh, what information regarding personality traits and motivational states do people derive from facial and bodily features? Sure. Yeah. So, so quite a, quite a bit. Now, now the now the crux of the controversy though is. Uh, how much of this is a heuristic versus how much of this is a kernel of truth? And there's there's a bit of back and forth in literature on this one, uh, including somebody who didn't replicate one of my findings one time. Uh, so it's so <laughs> uh, yeah yeah it's it's yeah, you you just dust your pants off and you keep going. Uh, but yeah yeah for the most part here there appears to be some kernels of truth. Now unfortunately this is a bit bounded by folk language across cultures, so. Uh, some things that so just as an example, the face that I'm that I typically use for my my research on facially connoted personality, uh, th- those are those are faces that were you know based around a, uh, a sample of students uh, in Midwestern America, uh, and, and there seems to be some kind of a signal value. I, I'm consistently finding that that, that people you know, are uh, are they seem to be weighing this trade-off. Uh, I mean, I I found that you know yeah uh, uh, well just as an example, facial extroversion. So uh, so. How we conceptualize extroversion will it'll vary from personality theory. So are we doing talking the Big Five? Are we talking about Hexaco? But even then too, there are different ways to measure the Big Five. So uh, all, uh, all these different kinds of things could you know, could, uh, could possibly be you know be going on there. But at, uh, but at the same time, though, we seem to be picking up on some kind of signal value of what that of what that could be uh, that could possibly be. 
So a lot of these trade inferences, at least bounded by, you know, uh, a culture's language or maybe just a, a specific, you know, uh, personality inventory, uh, we can actually uh, ma uh, map specific costs and benefits on someone based on what they look like with, you know, a degree of accuracy or at least uh, something that could be functional. So even if we're not necessarily inferring somebody's actual intentions, uh, uh, so in the case of an extrovert, someone who's very friendly, who wants to have social connections, even if we're not accurately inferring that, we're still in a position now where we have enough information from that face to say, this person can do this or that. Then we can say, is this person you know, a possible disease vector? Is this person friendly? Or in the case, of, uh, especially considering you know, the, the connection between you know, uh, formidability and extroversion, uh, uh, are, are extroverted men seen as possibly you know, physically dominant, physically aggressive? Uh, so uh, uh, we have those kinds of uh, considerations going on, at least in my work. Uh, other work has found you know, different kinds of things, again, depending on, on, on how they measure things. Uh, and, and again, there's, there seems to be a pretty strong kernel of truth to a lot of face inferences. Should we be, should we be making social policies based around that uh, or using it super literally? Probably not. I, I, I mean, the, the effect size is, is fairly small. It, it's significant. It's legitimate. I, 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 put, I put stock in this, this being a real effect. But at the same time, though, there are so many competing signal values and, and, and better ways to, to evaluate things that, that, that these facial inferences, uh, they, they're best used as a heuristic that could possibly inform things until somebody has better information. Mm -hmm. So changing topics, uh, I would like to ask you now about uh, humor. So sure. what, what styles of humor are there? For example, in your work, I read about aggressive and self-defeating humor. But could you tell us about those and then possibly about other styles? Sure, yeah. So for the most part here, when we're talking about humor, there's oftentimes a, a consideration of uh, how, how to say this. Uh, so what actually would be the function of humor? So some theories posit that humor has inter and intrapersonal functions. So interpersonally, it could be a way to ingratiate. It could be a way to strengthen pair bonds. On an intrapersonal level, humor could be possibly a way to make yourself feel better. You know, if you're able to laugh at, at how absurd life can be sometimes, uh, I mean, Monty Python even wrote a song about that. It's uh, you know, you're, you're, you're in a situation where you can uh, probably feel better. Uh, yeah. In this case, here, some researchers uh, going back yeah, about 20 years now, they were they classified humor based around four specific styles. There likely are more styles if we go to more recent conceptualizations. So, you know, some work from uh, Willie Rook, uh, uh, they've just started conceptualizing in terms of comic styles. But in that paper in particular, we considered the classic four humor styles. So we have aggressive humor uh, and affiliative humor, the, fir the first two. Those are considered interpersonal styles. So affiliative humor seems to be in the service of making everybody else laugh. So that way you can ingratiate yourself with them. But then we have aggressive humor, which is rooted in the notion of you're trying to enhance yourself at the expense of other people. Mm -hmm. uh, one can possibly consider that as teasing, bullying. Uh, if you ever see, seen a roast, that's kind of what a roast would be. That's uh, no, like. Yeah. The, the difference between so with affiliative humor, the difference between Steve Martin versus Gilbert Gottfried, just the, the, that kind of competition, and then we have the uh, the interpersonal forms of humor. So we have we, we have self-enhancing humor. So this is laughing at uh, to quote Bob Ross, life's happy accidents. So you know, <laughs> so we 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 have those. Uh, so basically, if life is stressful, you try to enhance yourself to make yourself feel better, and then we have self-defeating humor. 
which uh, best way I can describe that uh, for for those of you who may be familiar with the show Seinfeld, uh, George Costanza would be the classic self-defeating humor. Uh, just to, it's a very uh, it's a very downtrodden approach. Basically, you're you're self-deprecating anything that is ingratiating. You, you know, it, it's it, in a sense you're, it's almost uh, modesty to the point of detriment. And, and in many instances, actually, uh, people tend not to prefer to be around self-defeating humorists. Not so, not, not so much aggressive humor. Uh, so he, uh, aggressive humor is you know is unilaterally not not cared for. It both seen in my own research and and other people's. Uh, but at the same time, though, self-defeating humor will ultimately take a backseat compared to affiliative and self-enhancing because of the fact that you know, at a certain point it becomes uncomfortable when someone's just uh, roasting themselves all the time. Yeah, I mean, so self-defeating humor usually has on other people the opposite effect of what the people who are using it expect. Yes, right. yes, yeah. Yeah, they, yeah. so... so so, so, so this isn't necessarily to say that self uh, self defeating humor can't be funny. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. like it, like Rodney Dangerfield made a whole career out of uh, making fun of himself and and just uh, saying that he has no respect. But say, at the same time, though, if that's if that's the uh, the only arrow in your quiver and it gets to the point where it's a that, that that's all you do, uh, there's a chance that you're likely going to be seen as more neurotic. And and and, and I've recently uh, so this paper is it's currently under review right now. I've, I've shown that self-defeating humor is seen as especially neurotic, and just in general, uh, neuroticism is, is not something that we typically gravitate toward. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, do, do people who, who tend to use this kind of humor seem weak to other people? Uh, so, actually, slightly. Now, I, I, have, a, I have some preliminary data where we, we kind of showed that. It's... I, I would have to replicate that myself, but yeah, mm -hmm. they're, they're, uh, that, that's kind of, really kind of on, a, uh, on, on a base level. The idea is that maybe maybe we, we are heuristically saying this person is weaker, but at the same time, though, so actually, actually, Ricardo, that's an interesting question because there's also some research suggesting that men who are physically stronger, men with more upper body strength, they tend to uh, report fewer depressive symptoms. They tend to, uh, you know, they, they tend to have uh, supposedly healthier personalities. So, so, so in this case here, maybe we're inferring, you know, possibly somebody's uh, physical weakness or just uh, some some kind of, you know, maladaptive nature of them through uh, excessive self-defeating humor. Mm -hmm. And those kinds of men that are more sort of dominant, do they tend to use more aggressive humor? Is that yes? Right? Yeah, yeah, most most definitely they do. Yes, yes, uh, yeah. So. Uh, uh, certain dark personalities tend to be associated with with aggressive humor use. Uh, 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 now, now, this research tends to be it's it's not as well understood right now, just because uh, this is still something that that's uh, uh, you know fairly in its infancy. Uh, I, I do have some preliminary data with another colleague showing that there's an association between aggressive humor and upper body strength. Uh, but at, at the same time, though, uh, you know we. Uh, more more dominant people they tend to use aggressive humor mu uh, much more and we actually can infer this so the, the paper that that references all these humor styles uh, I've sh we've shown actually that the physical features that are associated with uh, dominance and hostility those uh, tend to be perceived as diagnostics of someone having an aggressive humor style someone who puts down others for their own benefit someone who bullies so th there's at least some kind of implicit theory uh you know, looking at other people saying this person is likely going to get his kicks from being physically strong. Mm -hmm. 
So the sort of facial features we talked about earlier also connect to preferred humor styles? Uh, on a stereotype level, yes. Uh, I, I can't say there's a kernel of truth yet, but there is. Uh, but at the same time, so, so the, the one big example is facial width to height ratio. So facial width, obviously, is sexually dimorphic. Some research says that certain components appear sexually selected. But the most important thing is uh, there's a cross-cultural inference of uh, uh, men with a higher ratio as more aggressive. And my work shows they're seen as physically stronger because, again, we have that, uh, that, that connection between between face and body and at the same time though we have that that heuristic association between strength and aggression but what we see actually is that men with a higher facial with the height ratio that would make them look more aggressive we tend to perceive these people as more likely to use aggressive humor we see them as more likely to uh, uh, uh bully essentially as, as a way to laugh yeah so still within the domain of humor i would like to ask you about uh, another paper not taking a joke, the influence of target status, sex, and age on reactions to workplace humor. So what is that paper about? What were you studying there? Yeah, so that was an interesting one. This was, uh, So this idea bore out of the idea that my advisor and I were trying to do studies on humor just because we thought it'd be fun. And it turned into, uh, well, uh, the... A lot of these, the, 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 the kind of the inspiration of this paper was, it was like right around the height of, of the Me Too movement, we started seeing you know, uh, Harvey Weinstein and all those guys, you know, get brought down for their inappropriate behavior. And we thought to ourselves, well, what about people who are, you know, uh, who are, you know, uh, doing things that could be considered inappropriate work? Maybe, are we tolerating these people? So we turn to this old theory known as idiosyncrasy credits uh, insofar as uh, people who have some kind of social capital, some kind of social value, people uh, to whom we assign a high social status, do we actually let them get away with certain things, which could possibly explain uh, Harvey Weinstein, powerful man who was able to do awful things because he was yeah, he has such high status and he'd, he'd get young women movie roles. Mm -hmm. So uh, we thought that that would uh, that potentially this doing some kind of egregious or offensive behavior. I mean, obviously not nearly as bad as, as what what Mr. Weinstein did. Uh, but at, at the same time, though, are uh, are we going to allocate uh, uh, just uh, a, a better feeling toward uh, toward high status people based on this kind of behavior? And in this case here, uh, we were using offensive jokes. So this was probably the greatest pilot study we ever did. We had, we actually found, we had a joke book full of offensive jokes actually. And we, and we basically, we, we pilot tested ones. Uh, we found ones that were equally funny from, so they, so they were considered uh, like, uh, categorically funny, both the offensive and the non-offensive jokes, but they were seen as similarly funny. And we, and at that point then we said to ourselves, if a high status person, namely uh, an older man, maybe if this person were to tell an offensive joke at work, maybe we would give them a pass. That's what we predicted. That's not what we found. Uh, so, so, the, so the reason why we, we, uh, I wanted to mention uh, Me Too movement actually is uh, potentially our, uh, we we seem to be seeing a bit of a bit of a, a reversal of that actually. Uh, that in that case here, uh, the uh, the high status men, uh, the older men, uh, if they told an offensive joke. They were more likely to feel sanctioned. They were more likely to say, "This person, uh, uh, you know, they they should they should be sanctioned. They uh, they should have some kind of disciplinary action toward them." So there appeared to be just a, a strong uh, revulsion toward the, these historically high status cues. 
So, uh, uh, and, and this is even considering uh, young women who are lower status on the company in the study, they appear to be getting the free pass now for being offensive. So even though, again, this is, you know, especially offensive stuff that's be, that's being said to people, that seemed to be, a, uh, uh, we're seeing an, another possible kind of idiosyncrasy credit based around what, I, what a couple of colleagues and I are, are describing the Me Too movement as a selection pressure just to make sure that individuals don't uh, incur some kind of social sanction themselves or possibly as a way to uh, weed out bad actors from just the availability heuristic of, high-status men, you know, behaving badly. Mm -hmm. So, uh, going back to formidability, I would like to ask you know, a couple of questions about its potential relationship with uh, politics and morality. So, sure. is there a relationship between formidability and political militancy and preference for some moral foundations? Yes, yes. So, most broadly, a very, there's a very consistent finding that... Uh, that, uh, that physically strong men tend to be more militant. They tend to be more like, more conservative. They tend to oppose redist redistribution of wealth. Uh, they, they, they just tend to have a more aggressive interpersonal style. Uh, and, and typically speaking, the reason possibly for that is because uh, in historic environments, men who are physically stronger, they could command more resources. They had higher bargaining power. Mm -hmm. And in this case here, you know, just to, they, they would have developed a more uh, self-interested uh, psychological calculus for dealing with the world. And based on, on the self-interest, uh, that could possibly turn into, uh, you know, just uh, what, what, what would manifest in today's world as just conservatism, uh, you know, just uh, you know, being, you know, uh, taking care of yourself, uh, being able to, or, or favoring competition, favoring aggressive bargaining. Uh, and, and my work shows that in addition to other work is that uh, you know, physically strong men, they tend to be more militant. Uh, and at the same time, though, uh, they also, they, they tend not to read their morality in, in foundations based around uh, caring for people. So the individualizing foundation. So in, in, uh, in the paper that you're referencing, uh, we didn't necessarily find that they're, that they're, that uh, we didn't find strong men's morality to be based in, in, uh, in, in, uh, in, uh, in uh, all the binding foundations. But we did find again was that physically strong men they tend to, they tend to not to center their morality around caring for other people in fairness. Right. And what about socioeconomic status? Do you find a relationship or some sort of correlation between formidability and socioeconomic status? Uh, so, so in that work in particular, we we didn't necessarily look at that, but mm -hmm. just in general, what what we see is. Uh, that, well, my and other research, uh, physically strong men, they have a higher bargaining power, so they're able to command more resources. So mm -hmm. they're able to ascend social hierarchies. They, they can attain status. And if you have status, that's greater access to resources. That's uh, uh, having greater access to reproductive opportunities. So they're, they're, uh, so even though I, I can't actually speak to SES specifically, I can say that uh, we do uh, bestow a lot of status, which could possibly be commensurate to SES, uh, uh, two strong men, possibly for the benefits they could afford our coalitions. Mm -hmm. uh, talking about morality, does the ontology serve a signaling function in mating? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so this is a, this, uh, this is a, a, a fun one, actually. So th there's quite a bit of research showing that uh, in many instances, uh, a more deontological uh, you know, way of living, both in terms of 
wanting to follow social rules or specifically not doing things that, that would allow harm to befall another person. Uh, as as though, uh, uh, those who have this kind of interpersonal style, we tend to view them as more trustworthy. We tend to view them mm-hmm. as less calculating. We tend to view them as uh, more reflexive in what they're going to do. So they're not going to weigh the options of whether it's best to help us. Uh, so, so in that instance here, a deontologist can be seen, again, seen as trustworthy. Maybe there's a downstream in, uh, yeah, inference of that. So this isn't necessarily saying that deontology is, a, is, a, is an actual signal per se, but mm-hmm. we're able to infer something by someone who is a rule follower, someone who uh, basically is just uh, like uh, a modern day Immanuel Kant, someone who, uh, who has that, that very, uh, uh, very rule-based morality. And what we see is, uh, at least with my work, we view deontologists as more interested in long-term mating. We view them as more desirable in a long-term mating context. Uh, we view them as more faithful to their relationship. And well, here's kind of the fun part with this too. Uh, uh, so even though deontologists are so desirable in that context, my work shows that uh, that in a short-term mating context, deontologists can be seen as a complete disaster. <laughs> okay. So uh, now in the last part of our conversation, I would like to go back to uh, physical and facial features and ask you about uh, limbo rings. What uh, are limbo rings and... I mean, is this also some sort of sexual dimorphic feature that one of the sexes pays attention to more than the other or not? Okay, so yeah, limbo rings, uh, uh, that, or as I like to call it, uh, the, the driving force of, of the past decade of my life. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I never shut up about these things. Uh, so, so, so in this case here with limbo rings, uh, the best way I can describe it, it it's basically it's an interaction between uh, the, the the cells in your eyes where your limbus meets your sclera. So the uh, the color part of your eye, your limbus, your iris, and the square of the white part of your eye, they mm-hmm. interact with each other and they make you know, and, and the and basically it creates uh, a, a uh, you know an optical effect of of a contrast. So mm-hmm. for individuals who have translucent corneas, so, so basically individuals who have good chronic health. They typically have limbal rings that tend to be very vibrant, very noticeable. Younger adults tend to have them, and, and they tend to dissipate with. Uh, they they become less visible with age because of the fact that individuals are getting chronic health issues. Glaucoma could be a possible th- thing going on with that. And in this case, your what a limbal ring does, it's not so much that that limbal rings are considered unattractive so much as they facilitate perceptions of attractiveness. So what we see is people with limbal rings, we have a contrast between light and dark. The, the the limbus is not bleeding into the square when when the what with that lack of contrast the white of your eyes look less white so the limbal ring serves as this very dark distinct ring around your iris and it separates the color from from uh, from the white pretty easily and basically it just makes sure that 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 you know, the blue the brown whatever doesn't bleed into the white and your eyes can look whiter and my research other people's research shows that you know with the presence of this ring this makes the face look more attractive this makes somebody look healthier uh, and typically speaking, women tend to use it as a, a cue to, uh, you know, well, uh, heritable fitness uh, in, in a lot of mating decisions. Uh, my work shows pretty consistently that women are the ones really using global rings. Sometimes me- uh, men are sensitive to them, uh, them in women's faces, but women tend to be especially sensitive that, to them in men's faces. And they tend to have a, a fairly high signal value in men's faces. And ultimately what happens is... Uh, uh, women tend to use them to identify good prospective short-term mates. 
So just in general, women tend to be fairly judicious in their short-term mating selection just because an active intercourse with someone, yeah, 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 one active intercourse with, with a person who doesn't necessarily have the best genes that could possibly, you know, be a fitness cost on a woman. So if she wants to identify someone who appears healthy. So what my work shows is that women who are who are sensitive, who are looking for a short-term mate, they tend to be especially sensitive to the to the presence of wimble rings. And it's not so much that they prefer wimble rings. I mean, they're they're relatively attractive, but it's it's more about they're avoiding faces without them. And so one can argue uh, a, a kind of a conflict between uh, are is a good is a good gene attraction or bad gene avoidance. And my work shows that a lot of it is based around trying to avoid the so the cost of a bad active intercourse would be greater than the, than the benefits of a good active intercourse. Essentially, that's that's what my work is showing. And when women are looking for, for a good short-term mate, they tend to uh, pay attention to that. And, and just in general, men tend to uh, 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 yeah, yeah, so men, men with men with these rings. So, so just in general, uh, the men have more chronic health issues, especially cardiovascular issues. Uh, women have estrogen that can uh, more estrogen that can buffer a lot of these uh, these effects in them. But at the same time, though. Uh, yeah, just uh, men. Yeah, the the uh, the presence in, in men's faces this can you know, can connote you know uh, just how healthy or attractive they are, and women just tend to use that when they're making their evaluations. Mm -hmm. Do people also make inferences about the parenting ability of potential partners through their bodily features? Absolutely, they do. Yes, yes, body, face, whole, the whole thing. Uh, so what you're likely referencing right now is is my my dad and mom bots paper. Uh, yep, <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, that I was very proud of that title. Uh, my, my advisor said, "Oh, good job." Uh, so this, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so with that one actually, uh, that's kind of based around what are some heuristic associations we have for uh, body composition and and you know parenting behavior. So just in general, we we tend to view individuals who are heavier as just well. We view, in many instances we view them as warmer, especially as a parent. And in, in my work, we sh we've shown actually that men and women's bodies with higher adiposity, well, not not, not incredibly high. So we're not getting into the realm of, of being overweight, just higher levels of body fat. Uh, we tend to view these individuals as warmer. They, we view them as as better parents, possibly. Uh, and maybe there is that that stereotypical association of of, of the dad bod with you know just you know being a good dad. And women may be picking up on that because you know, conversely, men who appeared very muscular, men who didn't have a whole lot of body fat, we tended to view those men as, well, we view them as more aggressive. So are they going to be nurturing? Are they going to be caring? So uh, 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 even though the, these men will be you know, pretty good at protecting their offspring, which another paper I, I've, I've, I've mentioned before, it, it shows that, they aren't necessarily going to be the ones who are going to care of the kids as much and maybe they're not going to be uh, as, as warm to them. But is there a kernel of truth to that, or is it just a stereotype people have? Uh, a little column A, a little column B. Uh, so with the body fat stereotype with men, uh, I, I would say that's much more of a stereotype. But in terms of muscularity, uh, there seems to be some kernel of truth to it from the notion that uh, men with the, so more muscular men, they tend to have higher levels of testosterone. And just higher levels of testosterone associated you know, with aggression overall. Uh, so that when, uh, you know, so just as an example, uh, uh, at the onset of fatherhood, uh, men tend to have lower levels of testosterone, just makes them le less aggressive and basically uh, 
it gets them ready to uh, hold that baby or to uh, pick up the plastic phone if, if, if they hand it to them. Uh, things, if, if, a, if a toddler ever hands you the plastic phone, you pick it off. Uh, so, it's, 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 so, but 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 in that instance here, uh, you uh, basically the 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 chemical underpinnings of their uh, competitive behavior is just uh, lower when when they become fathers. So there's likely some kernel of truth in that, even though the body fat one, that's still an empirical question that I would be very interested in doing. Uh, but for for women. There is a kernel of truth with more feminine features. So we also looked at at, at breast size. So typically speaking, we we view well, you know, we view women with larger breasts as more nurturing of their offspring, especially you know, uh, you know at higher levels of body fat. Uh, more, women with more feminine features, we have, you know higher levels of estrogen than that. We tend to view them as more motherly. So there is always that connection. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to women preferring men with dead bods. Uh, doesn't it isn't it influenced by their I mean they having a more long-term mating orientation than the short-term one because I would imagine that the ones that are more interested in short-term mating uh, they would prefer men who are more like fit muscular than yep. really uh, fat right yeah 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 100% yes yes uh so, and, and that's where the that's where the trade-off comes in. And just overall, some some other work I've show, I've done this year actually shows that the more muscular men we tend to view them as especially interested in short-term mating because they actually are uh, stronger men. They tend to prefer short-term mating. And and some of my work shows too actually uh, just got published uh, that physically strong men they they are especially desirable in a short-term mating context. I mean now strong men women want an attractive guy overall. But they're far more sensitive to the costs in a long-term context because after the active intercourse, uh, the, after the sperm provision, this guy's going to stick around. So uh, there may be a need to rely on other kinds of features to make these decisions. And so even though you know someone who's physically strong, someone who's muscular, they would be desirable in in, in this very you know short-term experience, heritable fitness. They're good-looking, of course. Uh, they still could impose a possible cost because they're physically large and promiscuous which could undermine uh, that woman's inclusive fitness, especially with her offspring. Mm-hmm. So just one last question, and, and now about the mum bod. So, uh, I mean, even though people tend to associate uh, mum bods with more motherly behavior, let's say, uh, when it comes to uh, mate preferences, I mean, wouldn't this be sort of an issue for men? Because it, isn't it the case that they don't tend to prefer as much women who already have kids of their own? Yeah, so the, so that actually poses an, an interesting question too, because yeah, uh, I mean, men, men do prioritize women who haven't had kids already. There's obviously that, that concern of paternal uncertainty that that could possibly mm-hmm. place. Uh, a lot of cultures, they they, uh, they value chastity in, in a perspective mate. Uh, but at, at, at the same time, though, there's still that, that competing signal value of she's had a kid before. Maybe the, uh, she's also similarly fertile. Maybe she has certain kinds of uh, fecundity going on. Now, this is... Uh, this is something that that I, I read recently. I, I don't know uh, uh, if it's uh, if it's published yet. Uh, I think it was, it was it was a conference abstract. Uh, but but essentially, uh, just even if, if if she were to have kids, if she still maintains some kind of like 
optimal fecundity in her body or uh, appears to have this fecundity, uh, mm -hmm. you know, she could be seen as, as desirable herself. And it's just a matter of, the, well, possibly maybe there's a personality difference or maybe there's a cultural difference as to a, as to when having you know, kids from a previous marriage would, uh, would actually make uh, any bit of difference, actually. Mm -hmm. Right. So, Dr. Brown, where can people find you and your work on the Internet? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, so for the most part, uh, I would actually like to uh, if, if anyone's interested in my in my research on uh, evolutionary psychology, everything that we, we've discussed today, you can go to my website. Uh, it's uh, spherelabar.weebly.com. I also have some interesting stuff on there about my work in the, in the realm of research ethics and meta science. Uh, so th that that'd be one place I, I'd go check that out. I have all my all my papers on on there for for, for free. Uh, you could also find me on Twitter at extroverted face. Uh, or one thing you, you could do is, as, as, especially if you want to challenge me to a science off, just come to University of Arkansas. I'd be very happy to to, to talk to you about things. Great. I will be leaving links to all of that in the description box of the interview. Wonderful. And thank you again so much for taking the time to come on the show. And it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Absolute pleasure for me too, Ricardo. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you so much. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing and to keep the channel sustainable, please consider supporting me on Patreon or PayPal. All of the links are in the description box of this interview. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check the website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke and Blanchett, Perga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingberg, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Ian Riccalania, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Ruth Gervoz, Wo Weingarder, Beckenberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegar, Rui Narcio, Arthur Coe, Zuc, Mark Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernadini, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Ivan Bodrin, Kuala Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrandt, Aslan Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, JW, João Oira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dejda Araujo, Romain Roach, Dermitri Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, John Linares, Lida Cosmides, Saima Afzal, Adrian Gagey, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, John Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Dennis Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Todd Shackleford, Sunny Smith and John Wisman. My producers is our web, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Luis Caetano, Tom Wagner, Dan Curtis Dixon, John Linares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardis Francis, Thomas Trumbull, and Nuno Welder, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano, and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.